0: Welcome to another episode of Berean's Podcast. Each week we share a message from the Bible and examine it to understand and learn to apply it to our lives. The hope is that through the wisdom of the scriptures, we will all be encouraged to make real life change and that the power of the gospel will transform our lives. Thanks for listening and enjoy this episode of the Berean Podcast that starts right now. everyone. I hope that you're doing well today. It's a great day to be together. My name is Devin, the lead pastor here at Berean, and I have to say that wherever you are at on the journey, it's a good day to be here. Maybe you call Berean home. You come here every week. You love Jesus. You can't wait to celebrate the resurrection, and this is kind of your regular routine. Welcome. But maybe you're here, and this is all kind of new. And the only reason you're here is because Grandma said that if you want to come over for dinner, tonight for Easter, you have to come to church, and this is like your yearly kind of check-in. If that's you, welcome. And I should say, you have impeccable timing. Because this is... An important Sunday. And if you're going to understand Christianity, the claims of Christ, the implications of Christ in your life today, this is a terrific Sunday for you to be here. But how do you do justice to the greatest story ever told in 30 minutes? How can you possibly cover all that God has done to rescue us from sin and judgment by entering into human history and doing what you and I could never do to accomplish our salvation? How can I cover all of that in 30 minutes? And I've done the math, and I simply can't. So what I've asked is for the doors just to be shut. We're going to go for about 75, 85 minutes. I talked to your grandma. She doesn't care. She wants you to hear it, so... No, I just, but we can't cover everything, but we can cover enough. Enough for what? Well, enough for you to experience the transformative power of the resurrection. You see, everything in the Christian life is based upon and lived out of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. There is no Christianity apart from the literal, physical, historical resurrection of Jesus from the dead. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verses 14, and then in 17, the Apostle Paul boils it down to us so incredibly simple. He says this, If Christ has not been raised, if the resurrection didn't happen, our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. Later, he says this, if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. If Jesus is not literally historically and and really raised from the dead, then I need to find a new job. You need to find something better to do on Sunday morning. And maybe we could divest and sell this building and turn it into like a trampoline park. They seem (laughs) like a good... Uh, maybe a, a mini-mall of sorts, community center. You see, if Jesus didn't truly rise from the dead, then Christianity is utterly pointless. But if he did, if he did rise from the dead, then Christianity is unbelievably powerful. It all hinges And it's based upon his crucifixion and his resurrection. So let's talk about this unbelievable power. Let's talk about the resurrection. And to do that, I want to invite you, if you have a Bible, to turn to 1 Corinthians 15. I'm going to put it up here in just a minute. So if you don't have a Bible, don't worry. We actually have some available for you at the Welcome Center. And we would love for you to have one of those and to take those home. Because everything we do here is based on God's word. It's not my opinion. It's not your opinion. It's God's opinion. So we submit to him because he's the king and we're not. He's the creator and we're not. He's the Lord and we're not. We submit to him. And so this passage out of 1 Corinthians that we're going to be looking at is a really famous teaching by the Apostle Paul about the significance, the historical reality, and the implications of the resurrection of Jesus. And sometimes, if you're not familiar with the Bible, it can just seem like a whole bunch of pages. And who are these people? Who are these writers? What's their story? Well, thankfully, for the Apostle Paul, we're given quite a bit of information about his background. And what you see when you study the life of Paul is that he wasn't one of those, oh, I've just, i always believed and I've never really doubted type people. No, he wasn't one of those, well, you know, my parents brought me to church, and then I went to youth group, and I met a girl from the youth group, and she liked to go to church, and so we got married and in a church, and then we kept going to church, and then we had kids, and we thought, you know what, they should be raised in church too, and I guess it's just kind of something I was born into. No, that's not the Apostle Paul's life experience at all. What you see is that the Apostle Paul devoted himself body, heart, and soul to destroying the early church. That He gave his time, his energy, his passion to finding creative ways in hunting down Christians to see them imprisoned and executed. He hated Jesus. But then something happens because he goes from somebody who hated Jesus to somebody who could say, for me to live... Life, life is Christ. Life is about Jesus. And to die, man, that's a gain because I'll get to be with him. Paul goes on to say in his life, everything is rubbish, is garbage compared to knowing Christ. He goes from hating Jesus to loving him, to persecuting him, to preaching him. This is the transformative power of the resurrection of Jesus. It can change your life. And what we see here in the Apostle Paul's personal story is important for you as well. Because you come maybe on a Sunday like this, and you look around this room, and you're like, man, people dress so nice. Look, they got their big Bible in tow. All their kids are dressed the same. They must just have their life completely together. You look at this guy up on stage, and you're like, I, you know, he must just have it all together. And you're sitting there saying, is there a place for me here? I don't belong here. Devin, you don't know the things that I've done. You don't know the mistakes that I've made, the people that I've hurt, how I've been hurt. You look around this room and you see a bunch of well-put-together people. And you think, while well, there's a seat for me here, there's no place for me here. What the story of Paul shows you today is that every single Person here can be forgiven and transformed. That there is nothing that you have done that removes you from the ability to receive God's grace and forgiveness. If Paul can be transformed, so can you. So at some point in this Christian journey, if you're going to follow Jesus, you have to just get over yourself. And instead of focusing on your failures, Focus on Christ. This apostle Paul, who writes this passage, is a man who was transformed. And that transformation happened when he met the resurrected Lord. And my hope and my prayer, our hope and our prayer as a church, is that if you have not yet met Jesus... That today, that in the coming days, the coming weeks, the coming months, you personally will experience the transformative power of the resurrection of Jesus. It happened to the Apostle Paul, quite an unlikely convert. And it can happen to you as well. So with that, let's jump into our passage today. Now, normally at Brian, when we are preaching through a book of the Bible and we have a passage, I'll invite you to stand. I'm not going to do that today because we're going to do it in stages. And I I didn't want to be doing, you know, calvesthetics here at church and up and down and up and down and everything like that. Although maybe with grandma's big dinner coming up later, that wouldn't have been a bad idea. But let's look at 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 1. <coughs> he says this, Now... I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preach to you unless you believed in vain. He says, right at the front end here of this section where he deals with the resurrection, I want to remind you, brothers and sisters, those of you. Who are hearing, I want to remind you about something. I want to point your hearts, your attention, and your focus towards something important. And he says that that something is the gospel. Now, generalities and cliches won't help us here. And so I think it's important that we are specific. Sometimes words can get robbed of their significance, of their meaning. Sometimes words can be misused in a culture as opposed to how they are in the Bible. Sometimes we can just have confusing words as Christians that we need to define. I get that. So let's talk about gospel. Paul says, I want to remind you of the gospel. So then, what what is the gospel? Well, very simply, gospel means good news, glad tidings. And it was used quite frequently in the Roman era. It was used when a new heir to the throne would be either appointed or born. It was used when a general would conquer neighboring nations or enemy city-states. It was the good news of the triumph, the victory of Rome. And Christians came along and Jesus came along and he began to say, no, there is good news, but this is capital T, the good news. This is the greatest news that has ever been told. This rivals the birth of an heir or the conquering of a nation. This is the overthrow of evil and sin and death. This is the good news. We all get good news here and there, right? Maybe grandma buys you those little scratch tickets every Christmas and you don't really know why because it seems like a strange gift to give. And you win another round. Oh, it's good news. Good news for you. There's good news in life, and then there is the good news. That's what I want to remind you about today. That is what I want to preach to you today. That is what I want you to receive today the good news of Jesus Christ. This is the news of how God became man to rescue and to redeem. How God entered into our sinful and broken world to do what you and I could never do. Why is this gospel so important? Why does Paul want to remind you? Why do I want to remind you today? He goes on here and he says, By which, through this gospel, you are being saved. This is why it's so significant. Why it's so imperative that we wrestle with this good news, that we chew on it. This is how you can be saved. You see, this is the difference between Christianity and every other faith, belief system, ideology, or religion. Everything else, because it is a product of a human mind, relies upon human actions. If you do these things, then maybe you can be saved. If you follow these five pillars, if you do these religious activities, if you find your ultimate meaning in these actions, then maybe you can be saved. Maybe if you detach enough from material possessions and you get deep enough and you meditate enough, maybe then you can achieve some kind of state of nirvana or, or, or rest or some kind of salvation. But Christianity flips that on its head. Because the gospel teaches us that we are not saved, that you are not saved based on, upon your works. But that you can be saved through the work of Christ. This is the beauty of the good news because here's the question for you. If you are seeking to work for your salvation, to impress some God, to prove yourself in some way, how do you know when you've ever actually done enough how do you go to bed at night with any kind of confidence that you have reached a high enough level in your performance to warrant salvation how do you know when you've worked enough and this is the message of the good news that it's not based on your work which is a good thing because we tend to highly highly overestimate our contribution to this whole thing By this gospel, Paul says, you are being saved. He goes on here and he explains that this is, without hyperbole or exaggeration, the single most important question that you could ever answer or wrestle with. He says this, by this gospel you are being saved. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scripture. That he was buried and that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scripture. He leads into this transitionary kind of section here in this passage. And he says, this is of first importance. There is nothing in your life that could rival the importance of what you do with Jesus. Every day you turn on the news, you scroll through your socials, you listen to the radio, and you are bombarded with what seems to be an unending list of problems that should terrify you, usually. Issues that are important and that require your investment and attention. From climate, to politics, to disease, to disaster, to injustice, to racism. And as as important as these things are, there is nothing that matters more than the gospel itself. The gospel has implications for all of life. But the single most important question that you can answer That which is of first importance is what will you do with the gospel? You can spend your life obsessing and researching all the supplements you should be taking. Spend time gathering information about what stocks to invest in, what crypto is going to do in this next calendar year, the best car to buy. But nothing compares to Jesus. This is of first importance. Why? Because Jesus controls your soul. You see, you are not simply a bag of meat, you are not simply a random. Cosmic accident that for a brief period in time feels like it has consciousness has meaning and value You are not simply neurons firing That has no ultimate purpose or meaning you are a human being made in the image of God and you have a soul that will live for eternity And that soul Will exist eternally In one of two places either in the new creation, alive, remade, resurrected, enjoying the glory of God himself, or that soul of yours will spend an eternity apart from Christ in hell. What does it profit a man, Jesus said, if he gains the whole world And loses his soul. There is nothing that matters as much as your eternal soul. You will at one point breathe your last and wake up. You will meet Jesus sooner or later. Paul met him sooner. He met him on the road to Damascus. He was transformed. Some of you have met Jesus here recently in the last number of months or years at Berean. Some of you have not yet met him. But you will one day. You will either meet him in this life when your eyes are opened and you bow your knee and you receive him as Savior and as Lord or you will meet him later. And when you breathe your last and open your eyes he will be there waiting for you. Rendering his right and just judgment. You can't escape Jesus. You're going to meet him sooner or later. It is much better for you if you meet him sooner. This is the gospel, that there is hope that you can be saved. You say, Devin, I don't really follow. Why would I need to be saved? I'm a pretty good person. Maybe you are. Maybe just this week, you saw a bird nest on the ground and there were some little gross looking chicks in there. And so you scoop them up and you got your little eyedropper and sugar water and the heat lamp and you're just tending for them ever. And obviously you're posting it all over social media because you want other people to be inspired. That's why you're not looking for credit or for an ego boost. You're doing it to inspire people. And maybe you clean up your neighborhood's garbage. You go around and you pick it up, even on that one day of the year when you're supposed to do that, right? You do it all the time and you're just a fantastic human being. You very well might be. But if you're honest, if we're honest, we know we don't cut it. We can't even, you can't even live up to your own standards, let alone God's. That's why we make New Year's resolutions. Because we're like, i got to fix myself. And it's going to be this year. We all have activities, actions, belief patterns, habits of behavior, vices or addictions that we wish we could just shake off. We all do things we say we'd never do again. I'm not going to yell again. I'm not going to spend my money in this way again. And we can't do it. You can't even live up to your own standards. What hope is there for you to live up to God's perfect Standards, You can't do it. You need to be saved. The good news is that there is a Savior, and he triumphed over the grave, that he is crucified and resurrected for your life. There is hope. This is the gospel that I preach, that I invite you to receive, that Jesus Christ was crucified and resurrected. And that all of this, Paul says, is in accordance With the scripture. He goes on in this passage that he was crucified, he died for our sins in accordance with the scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to the scripture. When the Apostle Paul wrote the book here of 1 Corinthians, the New Testament was still being written. So when he talks about the scriptures, More than likely, in large part, he's referring here to the Old Testament. Now, at that point, it wasn't yet old. It was still pretty current. But he's talking here about the Hebrew Bible. And what you see, if you are a careful reader of the Old Testament, is that God, providentially, before the events, gave his people glimpses and images and visions of what this coming Savior would do someday that literally before events unfolded, God allowed his prophets to see what would take place, to validate the identity of this Messiah. One such example is from Isaiah chapter 53. Now, Isaiah was a prophet in Israel. He was anointed, called by God to teach, to call the people, the nation back to him. And he has this constant theme of looking ahead into the future and longing for and predicting the coming Messiah. In accordance with the scripture, Paul says, Isaiah writes this. He was despised and rejected by mankind. A man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces. He was despised and we held him in low esteem. Surely he took our pain and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. And by his wounds, we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us have turned to our own way. And the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. When you read through Isaiah, and then you go and you read through the Gospels about the life of Jesus, you look at these and you say, how in the world could he know? How in the world could Isaiah know with such clarity who Jesus was and what he was going to do? And that's just one prophet out of the Old Testament. But maybe you're here and you say, hold on, Devin. What if some Christian writer in the early church got a hold of Isaiah and was like, don't mind if I do, and inserted some of that teaching into the copy of Isaiah. History, it says, is written by the what? The victors. And we see that in antiquity, that oftentimes populations will reach back, get some ancient documents, amend them in some way to bolster the claims of the present. Is that what happened here in Isaiah? Because some of this talk from Isaiah about the coming Messiah seems a little bit too clear to just call random. Well, if that would be an argument, I want you to recognize that it's a a solid argument in many respects. But there's a textual issue with it. Because in 1947, just off of the Dead Sea area there in Israel, a group of Bedouin shepherds discovered A series of caves with countless preserved ancient documents that are now referred to as the Dead Sea Scrolls. And these Dead Sea Scrolls covered so many different um, parts of community life or interpretations of the Old Testament, and it also had a number of sections of the Old Testament. Perhaps the pinnacle of the discovery was the Great Isaiah Scroll, and you can Wikipedia this, a gigantic scroll with the full text of Isaiah. Now, this had been sealed away, completely unavailable to any kind of tinkering Christian, wannabe do-gooder editor. It was sealed away in a cave for 2,000 years. And when it was discovered, they began to roll it out very carefully and then translate it to see if what we had today in Isaiah, what our English Bibles have, was the same as what was originally composed back at the turn of the millennia back 2,000 years ago. And what you see is that Isaiah, apart from place names and some punctuation and spelling, is exactly the same as what we have today. That God allowed his prophet to see ahead in accordance with the scripture, Paul says, who this Messiah was going to be. Well, Devin, that's just one, one critique I have. And I have others. Well, that's good. That's good, because faith is believing what you have good reason to believe. Faith is not a blind faith, right? You have good cause to believe something, you believe it. Let's say that you have an amazing marriage, right? Let's say you've been married for 55 years. Body, heart, and soul faithful. Incredible intimacy and unity. And you love one another dearly. How do you really know your spouse likes you? How do you even know they really love you? You can't prove it. You don't know their brain. You don't know their thinking. Maybe they've got some kind of weird long con game they're playing. (laughs) And you just wait till that 55 years hits number 60. Oh, then you're going to find out. No, you have good cause to believe. You cannot prove that. You take that on faith. But you take that on faith that has a good reason for believing it to be such. That's what God asks us to do with the Bible, with the good news of Jesus, to believe what we have good cause to believe. And Paul does exactly that here with the church he's writing to. He goes on and says this. And it says, he appeared to Cephas, then to the 12, and then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me. Now, I know there's a problem today with fact-checkers, because we all want to know who who's fact-checking the fact-checkers. And then once we get that established, we want to know who's fact-checking those fact-checkers who are fact-checking the fact-checkers. you see what Paul is doing here? He is opening himself to investigation. He is saying to the church, if you don't believe this resurrection talk, fact check me. There are people still living who saw him. There are people around. Here are some of their names. Here's where these events happened. Go and talk to them if you have questions. Hold on, Devin. Hold on, you say. I just don't buy it. There's got to be another explanation. It's too unbelievable to think about a man being resurrected from the dead. And you would say, you know what? I don't believe he was resurrected. Maybe you believe that the disciples stole the body. This goes back to the early church. Even Christians in the first few centuries had to deal with objections and criticisms like this. So there's nothing new under the sun in that respect. Let's say that you would argue that the disciples stole the body. Okay, that is a reasonable and rational explanation. But let's talk about that for a moment. Let's say they stole the body. I would ask, why did they do that? Okay, hear me out. They were, after Jesus' crucifixion, very content to go back to their regular jobs. You see that in the text. They had employment. They had social connections, family, friends. But after Jesus was resurrected, they continued to go and preach. So again, why would they steal the body? What did they get out of it? Hmm? If you read about the early church, some of these individuals, if you read church history, you will see it's not like these guys made mint it's not like they made a lot of money had all this power all these women and in private jets right we've all seen those so-called christians on tv right so did they do it for power for influence no what happened to them well they were abused they were mocked they were arrested and 11 of the 12 disciples were executed for following jesus if you come to me and you're like Devin, I've got a con that we can play. I've got a, I've got a really good way to make, well, we won't make money, but, um, well, we're not gonna, we're gonna lose a lot, a lot of social standing, but you just might get executed along the way. I'm gonna shut that storyboard down right away. Why would they steal the body if all they did was suffer? Well, you say, maybe he didn't actually die, Devin. Maybe he, this is called the swoon theory. That Jesus was crucified, but he didn't actually die. He passed out. They placed him in the tomb. The tomb was below ground. And so it was cooler in there. And there in the ground, he kind of revived. And after a few days of rest, he got up and stumbled into the city. And then they said, oh my goodness, he overcame death. Look at him. Well, let's talk about that for a moment. First of all, roman soldiers knew what they were doing they had one job it wasn't execution to hurt these people it was it was it wasn't crucifixion to merely hurt them or inconvenience them it was crucifixion to execute them this wasn't their first kick of the can they weren't sitting there saying now where do the nails go um oh, you put the cross upside down again, you know, he tilted tilt it this way? And, and is he dead? No, I don't think he's dead. No, they knew what they were doing. Then let's say that somehow miraculously, or not miraculously, I suppose you would say, that they placed Jesus in the tomb, but it turns out that he's not actually dead. People survive incredible things all the time. And there in the grave, after three days, he comes back to life. I got a few problems with this image of him popping back to life and rolling that big stone away. He has hands, he has nails in his hands, and he has nails in his feet. He hasn't eaten anything in three days, he hasn't drank anything in three days. He has been severely abused, suffering from blood loss and trauma. He's not setting any world records in his deadlift or his snatch, right? He's beaten up. How's he gonna move that stone? And even if he somehow did, because gravity was in his favor. And he just, oh, and the stone rolled away. (laughs) Let's say that he walks out, stumbles down the road, knocks on the disciples' door, and they see him standing there, clearly on the verge of death. Dry blood all over him. Infection beginning. His body is broken there in front of him. They would not look at him and say, my goodness, you are the son of God who has triumphed over the grave. They would say simply, oh my goodness, you survived. There's a big difference. Well, Devon, maybe though, maybe they lost the tomb. Again, reasonable, plausible until you look at the account of Scripture. Maybe they just misplaced the tomb. I, I can't get anywhere without Google Maps. Right? Maybe they just, they didn't have Google Maps back then. So maybe they just lost the tomb. Well, there's a few problems with that. Because the Bible records clearly that there were witnesses. There were people who tended the body, who placed the body. There were people who visited the body. They knew where this tomb was. It was a new tomb purchased and prepared by Joseph of Arimathea, a guy, a rich guy. This rich guy got rich by being careful with his money more than likely. Have you ever built a house and then been like, where Where was that house? (laughs) I know it was here. No, it was in a different city. That's right. No, you are careful with the things you invest in. When you read the academic and scholarly literature, and I'm not talking about YouTube theories about aliens and so forth when you look at people who take history seriously you will see that there's not a lot of really strong explanations for the information that we have about the resurrection the two other popular views would be mass hallucination which has never been noted or observed in human history the disciples were so sad they simply suffered a group hallucination The other one was that they were popping drugs, some kind of peyote trip or something. And they had this vision together, and they were transformed because of the psychedelics or the hallucinogens they ingested. Now, why do I say all of this? Is this simply so that we can have an academic debate? That it's some kind of interesting historical piece that we can wrestle with? No. I say all of this because the invitation to receive the gospel is an invitation for you to at some point recognize that you're only fighting this because you're fighting it. And that it's no longer a matter of of faith. It's a matter of fear. This is the gospel that I preach to you. This is the gospel that I call on you to respond, to receive so with that, let me bring this home. Maybe you're here, and this is your punch a ticket once or twice a year. But you would say, no, 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 it's okay. I still, sub- I believe, though. I believe. Let me challenge you. A follower of Jesus follows him. Do you really think that Jesus gave his life triumphed, victorious over the grave, delivering you from the power of hell, delivering you from the power of Satan so that you could make an appearance once in a while? No, he has much, much greater things for you and invites you to take your faith seriously To revel in him and enjoy him. Maybe you're here today and you are not a Christian. And you would say, I'm just I'm seeing it now. My eyes are being opened. I, I get it now. Some of the puzzle pieces are fitting together. If that's you, I want to invite you to respond, to bow your knee. Instead of saying for the as you did your whole life, look at my works. Maybe my, my works will be enough. Let go of that and turn towards Christ and grab hold of his work for you and his death on the cross for your sins and his resurrection for your life. Call out to him today. But maybe you're here and you're not quite there yet. And you would say, Devin, I'm kind of interested, but I don't believe yet. I have doubts. I have questions. Well, if that's you, What better place to wrestle with the transformative power of the gospel than with a bunch of people who have been transformed by that gospel? We're okay if you have questions. We're okay if you have doubts. We're okay if you're not there yet. It's okay to ask questions, and it's okay to have these doubts. The important thing, the necessary thing, is to do something About it, to look into it and to investigate it. Because truthfully, church, if it's not true, then there's nothing to worry about. But if it is true, there is nothing in your life today, there is nothing in your future tomorrow, there is nothing in the past, both your past and all eternity that could ever rival the importance of the good news of the resurrected and reigning Jesus Christ. So come back. Come back and wrestle with this good news by which you can be saved. Let me pray. Father, there are endless important things that grab our attention, our minds, our focus. Our lives are filled with noise and amusement and busyness. What I pray, Father, is that you will give us a sense of urgency as we wrestle with that which is most important. Father, there are people here right now who don't know you yet give them the courage give them the confidence to pursue you to ask the questions that they have inside to seek for answers give them faith not a naive faith but an authentic faith that doesn't fight simply to fight but is willing to say yes Jesus, we ask all of this in your glorious name because you are the resurrected Lord. You are the reigning king. We ask all of this in that great name. Amen. And that does it for this episode of the Berean Podcast. All of our ministries at Berean are geared towards the mission of seeing lives transformed by the power of the gospel. If you would like to be connected with our church family or give to the mission of Berean, just jump online to our website at bereanmn.com. Thanks for listening today, and we pray that you are encouraged by today's episode. Be sure to like us on social media, and we'll see you here next time on the Berean Podcast.